<clears throat> to understand us in relation to who you are. And would you now help us really understand that as we look at John's gospel this morning and we continue to see uh, the utter necessity for your work in us to know you completely. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so like we have been doing in the past, I'll pull up my notes here, but I am interested in, by way of review, some of the things that we have talked about so far in light of the doctrine of man, because we're gonna make a little bit of a transition now. I think I ended last session talking about if what we believe the scriptures teach about mankind is true, and we are in this condition that is completely helpless, hopeless, trapped, and then naturally I'm gonna ask myself the question of, well, uh, how do we get out of it? Do we get out of it? What takes place? What has to take place for us to get out of the condition that we find ourselves in? We have to be given yes. Well, we're going to get that. Don't spoil it for us, Mary, but <laughs> we will eventually get there. But there's, there's some great stuff. So what have we talked about since we've been doing this? This is the fifth time we've done this. And just by way of, uh, this will be the last of the scripture stuff. And the next Sunday, I will be transitioning into explicitly post-apostolic church history and how this doctrine starts flushing itself out in the history of the church. We'll get into talking about men like Augustine, uh, Pelagius, and on and on and on. And this doctrine of man and how it either gets corrupted, misunderstood, misapplied, or devoid of, of agreeing with what the scriptures would say about it. And what those controversies were in the past and why those controversies still continue even today. Um, ever so slightly, um, but that is where we're going next week. So what have we talked about? Sin. Sin. <laughs> yep, we have talked about sin. Well, what specifically about sin? The fall of man. Okay. What does the fall do to us? Gives us death. Gives us death. That was certainly the penalty, but... It's spiritual death. <laughs> we talked about some other things that, that fundamentally changed. Um, what happened to us at that, after the fall? Well, we no longer had a direct connection with the Lord. He could no longer, uh, we couldn't see him face to face without, because he is without sin and we were full of it. Mm-hmm, and we got the boot. Okay, knowledge of good and evil, Sarah? Uh, I was just going to say something like that. It, uh, consciences are hardened and yep. they're disturbed. And, the, and a conscience exists. That's very important to see too. Man has a conscience. He knows right from wrong. We were having a discussion about this last night regarding um, a topic that, I'm not even sure how I got on it, but that whole issue of sin and temptation and whatnot, and we got to talking about Cain and Abel again, and I mean, clearly, temptation was presented, and he elected to act on the temptation. Uh, is it possible that Cain could have not acted on it? Uncertain. But God's interaction there, we had a pretty good uh, discussion last night about that at the table. Okay, so that's, yeah, some of that other stuff. What else have we talked about? Every part of man's nature is, you know, mixed with sin. Yes, it's, uh, it is completely corrupt. And I said, and... Um, and I know folks probably get confused when we start using uh, theological jargon, but just look at it this way. Um, 
just see it as a, like an apparatus to kind of help you understand the, the topics of what we're talking about. Because today we're going to talk, I'm going to briefly read something from Burkhoff on what we call the Pactum Salutis. Um, but we call it, you can call it a lot of things. It's more often known as depravity. Man is depraved. And it's not partially depraved, kind of depraved. It's an utter depravity. It's a total in toto depravity. We also said that that does not mean what? I read that portion from Burkhoff's handbook on That's the... Right. There is, a, there is a spectrum. We do witness man doing things that are for a positive good. So it doesn't mean he's as bad as he can be, but that's not really the issue. His faculties, what I like to say is his ability to re-engage and re-encounter God, um, that is gone of his own will, of our own will. So um, that part definitely, um, I told you guys to read the chapter in the confession, I think, on free will, just to kind of get an idea of what we actually are saying, because man has a will. But the will functions to that which it desires in the fallen state. So it's only going to pursue the things that that condition generates. Right? This is what we learned last week in Romans. Right? So that's, that's very important to understand because we're going to look at John 3. And <laughs> I'm going to say this, but it's true. When folks are going around telling people God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. They are not doing people any favor by telling them that because it is completely separated from the condition that we find ourselves in. And that's the, the real part about that. So, and not to mention a whole host of other contraptions that you're going to have to deal with once you say that God is doing this with his love and yet people aren't responding to him. That, that's a whole issue there that you've got to flesh out. So anything else we've talked about? He suppresses the truth. Yes. More evil. Right. That's right. We, as creatures, are not passive in our sin. We actively seek it out. We actively engage in it. And we suppress God's truth in unrighteous. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, that kind of living, uh, Trevor. Yes. Yep, that's correct. So all of our faculties as creatures have been corrupted. So, anything else? I know it's a lot to digest um, before we get going on some other stuff. Okay. So briefly, I'm going to share with you a, a, uh, a reformed understanding of our condition as we've been learning about it. Uh, this is from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. And I'll just read this because I think it kind of encapsulates everything that we've been talking about before we move into John 3. So he writes um, basically on the topic of how God saves says, proceeding on the assumption that man's spiritual condition depends on his state, that is, on his relation to the law, and that it is only on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that the sinner can be delivered 
from the corrupting and destructive influence of sin. Reformed soteriology, and soteriology is basically how God saves. That's what the word means, it's associated with it. And that's, you know, if you're having a discussion with somebody and you wanna talk about that, that's really what we're talking about. Um, does uh, any of my Greek fellows in here wanna give us a meaning of the word soteriology? The study of salvation. Yep, the Greek word for salvation. So, so soteriology takes its starting point in the union that was established in what's called the Pactum Salutis, which is basically the relationship of Christ to the Father um, between Christ and those whom, he, whom the Father has given to Christ, in virtue of which there is an eternal imputation of the righteousness of Christ to those who are his. So... That's what we're gonna talk about. The doctrine of man has painted this really depressing condition we find ourselves in. And all of us, prior to our conversion, know the way in which we, we lived our lives, or the way in which we lived our lives prior to being converted. So then we have to ask, okay, what has to happen to get out of that state? So we call this basically the topic of this is God regenerates someone. God comes to them and delivers them. And that's why I said, I think in the first or second session, if you're here and you have this knowledge of the gospel, faith in Christ, that's a miracle. That God in his benevolence took Mary McGinnis and said, believe. And there's nothing that we, we do in this. It, it, it is acted upon us because we don't have the ability to seek out God himself. We wrap that up in the Romans passage and how the whole human condition is under that, that state, Jew and Gentile alike. So, okay. So that's a little bit of what Burkhoff is and that's what we're gonna talk about today. All right, let me pull some notes up again here. All right, so a little, little anecdote for you here. Uh, when I was really young, uh, you know, I don't know, probably about 10 years old, or late 1970s into the mid-1980s, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, those who know my testimony, that wasn't the case at all. Uh, but we were a practicing pagan religious family. And our religion on Sundays was the NFL. And it seemed like back in the 80s, I don't, someone can check on this, but I don't know. It, when I was a kid, it seemed like football was on all day long on Sundays. Like in the late 70s, 80s period, just all day long, me and my dad would sit there and we would just watch football. But I remember when I was a kid, you know, periodically they would do a pandering of the, of the stadium or whatever, and I would see like hanging off the rafters or hanging over a rail, the letter J, the letter N, three colon 16. Now, I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you this, but when I was a kid, I thought this was a secret code. <laughs> I had no idea, so I kind of kept that to myself. I didn't have the courage to ask somebody what, why I kept seeing that stuff, what it meant, nor did, would my dad have even told me, anyways. But so, you know, John 3.16, 
this verse um, is kind of taken on a life of its own and really misunderstood in a lot of respects. And what I'm gonna share with you this morning is you're better off actually taking into consideration all of what John 3 is actually saying because it addresses our condition and it addresses how um, Jesus saves. So anyways, um, a quick note here for you too. When we're, for what it's worth, um, the Gospels in general, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synop synoptic Gospels. Comes from the Greek word synoptikos, uh, and they're comprised in what are called pericopes, which are little, little portions. And so, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you have in those books what, what are called parallel passages. So if you have a, a, a story in Matthew and there's a parallel passage in Mark, you kind of have to read them in the whole to kind of get the totality of that story's picture. Some details may be present in Matthew that are not present in the others. And so they're kind of in their own classification, okay? And then we get to John's Gospel. And John's Gospel is in its own classification as well. And I'm curious if anyone would know maybe why why that is. John was an old man when he wrote it. He wrote it back in a way that the others were Excuse me. Yeah, well, the date ranges, in terms of when they were actually written, they ranges for a reason, because we don't really know exactly. Um, but I'm looking for something else. Trevor. Get a different purpose in writing it? Yes, and all of the authors of scripture, um, they have uh, an aspect of their writing that makes what they're doing unique. And so here's a heuristic, which is kind of a method of understanding um, that you can kind of, when it comes to the Gospels, that you can kind of put away for maybe later use. So when it comes to Matthew, we kind of generally think that uh, Matthew is kind of what Jesus said, okay? Mark's Gospel is what Jesus did, and then Luke is essentially who were the people who were following him. Now when we get to John's Gospel, very different, because John's Gospel is about who Jesus Christ was. So that's totally, it's a totally different kind of perspective on the book. Okay? And that's why it makes it different. Um, so there you go. Matthew is what he said. Mark is what he did. Luke is who followed him. And John is about who he is. And you don't have to go any further than the first chapter of John to recognize that that is the tone of the book. What am I referencing to in John 1? What do we call that? What's that? Yep. So you see that the book is about who he was. Okay? That's very, very important for us to understand this. All right. Yeah. John 1, he is the Logos. He is the Word. He is God. Okay. Now we're going to go into John 3, but...
Prior to you getting into John 3, you really essentially have to wrap up the very end of chapter 2 because there's a very important little thing there to grab. So if we look at John at the very end, we're dealing with the Passover cleansing of the temple, starting in 23, and this will become more important later on when we get into John 3. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Okay? Just let that matriculate and think about that. Um, And then he gets into this interaction in three. All right, now we're going to be introduced to uh, Nicodemus. There's a total of really three references to him. There's debate as to whether or not Nicodemus really came to faith. My personal conviction is he did. I can't prove it in the Bible, but the bringing of the myrrh, I think it was myrrh, right? The stuff for his burial, I don't know. Everything I can get my hands on reading about that seems like he, why would he do that otherwise? But I'm not going to get, you know, crazy about it. But anyways, all right. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he is well-versed in the Old Testament through and through. Um, he's a well-educated person being a Pharisee, so he knows, he knows some things, or he should know some things. So this man uh, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we're, we're told plainly, Jesus knows what is in every man. And later in this chapter, Nicodemus is going to have to eat crow. Because what he just said here is not true. Okay? Um, so Jesus answers him, <clears throat> Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, for those in the, the Christian experience, Christian world, they're going around and telling people that God's got wonderful plans for their lives, etc., etc. I want to ask you, after just reading that verse, what do you see Jesus doing when he says what he just said? Limiting. Ah. I didn't think about the word limiting, but yes. There is a proviso that he puts on who comes into the kingdom. Can you see that? I tell you, unless you're born again, you can't enter. So that's intriguing. And then, so Nicodemus, obviously being the ultra-literalist, you know, not really grasping what he should have been grasping as a Pharisee, says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? It's almost, there's a temptation to kind of see just this, almost sarcasm, 
in this literalness in his interaction and in his interview and in diatribe here, not diatribe, but dialogue with Christ, almost sarcastically. Come on, can't do that. Okay, so he's seeing this in this ultra-literal sense, which would make sense if he spiritually has not been appraised and understands what's going on. Okay? So, Jesus answers, truly, truly, anytime you see that in there, this is Christ saying, you need to listen to what I'm saying. I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So what do we have here again? Yeah. Jesus doubles down. You don't get into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And specifically, you need to be born of the water and the Spirit. That's very critical to see that. That the Spirit of God is directly and intimately involved in our conversion. Okay? Now, the reason why it's so interesting that Nicodemus, this isn't jiving with him. Take your Bibles and go over to the book of Ezekiel. Specifically, chapter 36, 7. Where am I going? 36? Yep. Okay, the mountains of Israel to be blessed. And specifically, where am I going here? I should have wrote these verses down. I was reading this this morning. 25? Yes. So, um, basically, starting in 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean." Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That's why Nicodemus should have recognized this. And he doesn't. And so, but more importantly too, it's very important for us to see that it's not carte blanche. Salvation is just not carte blanche. Christ says, want to get into the kingdom? Got to be born again. Specifically, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit of God. Does everyone see that? Okay. And this is why it's so much better to read a book and a chapter within its context instead of what has become a part of John 3.16. All right, so we continue. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Mankind, created mankind and mankind. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So here again, we have an emphasis 
of being born of the Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you please see that? Born of the Spirit. Not born of our own wills, which we have just spent weeks talking about how awful that condition is, but the Spirit of God intimately involved in those who will be entering the kingdom of God. Born of the Spirit, okay? And this is where we get the born-again language. Now, what has become of born-again today has just been, now it's in this political whatever, and, uh, but this is what it really means to be born again. Okay. So then the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So does everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, are we to expect and believe that Jesus did not know cardinal directions? I don't think that's the case. So what is he saying then? What do you think he's saying there in verse 8? We live in Wyoming, so we love wind. We can relate to wind. And what are the things you see when the wind's actually moving? What is it doing? Yes. Yes. Exactly where I was going, Cindy. Yeah, you see what it's doing on surfaces, uh, structures, trees. It's actually moving things. There is basically a result. So what does that mean? Well, there's going to be a result. If the Spirit of God moves on somebody, there is going to be a fundamental change in who that person is now if they're going to be going to the kingdom of God and being one of Jesus' disciples. Now, others have said, too, there's just also a, a concept here of, of and, and I think it's accurate, the Spirit moves indiscriminately. It doesn't consult things. It, it does what it wants, where it wants, and how it wants. So that's why it moves around as it wishes. And so it is with people who are born of God. So... That's what we're getting at there, They're the effect of this. So Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? Now, it, this is, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? I mean, he's, we have to know as a Pharisee, Nicodemus is steeped in the Old Testament. He knows that passage in Ezekiel. And it's about to get really interesting for him here in a little bit. Okay? So, Jesus answered and said to him, you're a teacher of Israel. Once again, we get to truly, truly, which is, listen up to this. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And guess what, Nicodemus? What does it say there? You do not receive the testimony. Now, what did he say in the very beginning of the chapter? Yeah. Right. No one could do these things unless they were from God. And Jesus just tells him, you don't believe my testimony. That's, that had to sting. But remember, at the end of chapter 2, 
you're dealing with Yahweh, you're dealing with God, and no one needs to testify to Jesus about what's in a man. He knows who is in, what's in every man. So that had to sting to be called out like that when he did this initial praise. And then it's really interesting too, at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about we. Nicodemus, you know, like we who, Nicodemus? We the Sanhedrin, we the greater Jewish community, we the whatever. And it's really interesting that Jesus elects to use this language as well. We speak of what we know. Yeah, we the Godhead speak of what we know. And you don't listen to our testimony. You don't accept the testimony. So. Right. And that's, so what I hope you guys are seeing here is the dovetail of talking about the doctrine of man and then actually how God saves. Okay? So that's, that's what we're getting at here. Like I said, my personal conviction, although I can't prove it, I think the man came to faith in Christ, but it's about to get really, really fun here. Okay. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Ouch. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, i.e., that'd be me, Jesus. Now get this, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when <coughs> Jesus says this next part. Check this out. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What in the world do you think, Nicodemus? Clearly, he's got to know that story. You guys remember where the story's from in the book of Numbers? And what happened? For their disobedience, they're complaining, they get judged, and then what happens? Okay, there's a very important part of the story, though, that we've got to capture. They had to look at it, but even before that, when, when this starts to occur, what do the people do? Well, yeah, I mean, once they start getting bit and they start dying, what do they do? They go to Moses, pray to the Lord for us. We were talking about Old Testament repentance. Here it is, right here. Pray to the Lord for us. And so, yeah, they make the, uh, the staff or the serpent and then all they have to do is look upon the serpent and they are saved. And what am I getting at with that? Christ will be in fact lifted up like the serpent was, will he not? And I really wonder what Nicodemus, so this is complete conjecture and I admit this, but if he was a witness to the crucifixion and if this interaction came right back to his mind, and so the Son of Man must be lifted up. But at the same time, you know that story back then? Hey, Nicodemus, that was me. That's, that's a lot to think about. Okay. So as Moses lifted up the serpent, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Okay, I got a note here. 
I'm going to talk about this because we need to. The scriptures um, know of only two categories of people. Believers and unbelievers. Those are the categories. Believers, unbelievers. And I've been told many times ago when you're up speaking or whatever, you never show your goat. You guys know what that means? What does that mean to never show your goat? Your goat. So basically, all right, Paul, anyone here know what this means? You don't reveal something about yourself that really gets on your nerves. So I'm going to show my goat. My molars grind, forgive me, brother, but when someone says non-Christian, oh, it's just tough for me to say it now. Because the scriptures know of no such category. They're either believers or unbelievers. That's it. So, yeah, when I hear non-Christian, I'm like, oh, it's just, ah, bite the tongue. Yeah, that one, and God is in control. Oh, oh. Uh, just, yeah, so now you know. So now I've showed my goat. Go ahead, Mrs. Giving. Yes. I could be another two categories. Yes, you could, I, you, I, would, I would be okay with that. In Christ, outside of Christ. But uh, what we get out here with the, the, basically the serpent story, etc. cetera, um, <coughs> those who are looking up at the serpent and, and believe, believe. They are the ones who will be saved. And then there are those who will not believe. So, um, well, I would argue they can't look. They can't see it. God has to fundamentally do something to them. So, now we get to 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We'll come back to this in a second. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. You have to interact with world. And many today in the greater Christian community, God so loved the world, and He's died for every man, woman, and child since the beginning of creation. And that's not what is being said here. And, I'll, and we'll just continue looking through here, and I think that you'll see that. Remember what I said, believers unbelievers. Um, so Jesus himself says, he who believes in him is not judged. These are people who believe in Christ. They don't get judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Believers, unbelievers. Okay. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now remember, we're talking about the doctrine of man and now we're talking about how man gets saved. This is Christ speaking, okay? So he is the light. That's another, the metaphors of light and darkness are all over the scripture. Turn over to Matthew real quick. 
chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, you see this. Uh, in 14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who were sitting, where? Darkness. In darkness. Now, back to John 3, Jesus says, the light's coming to the world. I am the light. But, we continue reading, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. And why? For their deeds were evil. They don't want to come to the light, which we're going to continue reading and seeing this. Remember, we got into the Romans passage. Man is not passive in his sin. He's actively engaged in his sin. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And he's not going, he doesn't want to come to Christ. And why? Well, then Christ is going to say, his deeds get exposed. I'm the light. I'm going to show you how bad you are. And they don't want that. So they refuse it. So this is the judgment. Okay, everyone who does evil hates the light does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Do you see this? Manifested as having been wrought in God. God is the one who does this work. Okay? We continue... After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea. And if it wasn't bad enough as it is, we're going to get to John the Baptist. And this whole issue of baptizing disciples, John's baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. Uh, John hadn't been thrown in prison yet. <clears throat> Therefore arose a discussion, on, I love these kind of discussions, on John's disciples with about purification. They come down and in 26, John is said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, okay? But I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full, which if you think about it, if he just saw the Messiah, the Savior of the world, you bet he's emboldened to go tell uh, Pilate, Pilate? Not Pilate, uh, Herod, a thing or two. Talk, think about that. He has seen and experienced the Savior of the world. You bet. I mean, he's probably really emboldened by that. Anyways, we continue. Uh, he must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above, now look at the language. John the Baptist, he recognizes. He's from above. I'm from below. Um, in 31, he is of the earth, is from the earth, speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of what he testifies, and check it out, 
in 32. Doctrine of man. What does it say? What is John the Baptist's testimony? Yep. John the Baptist even says, look, he's from heaven. I'm from the earth. And they don't even receive his testimony. Isn't that fascinating? So that's interesting in the doctrine of man. How is he then saved? Well, we've already talked about it. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And this born again thing doesn't happen with you. You're going to get born. We read about the prophecy, the sprinkling of the water, and the Spirit of God. That is who saves. So we say, basically, the Father calls. We call that regeneration. The Son, basically, atones for us. And the Spirit seals us. But it's very clear that we are not involved in the transaction of salvation. You are acted upon independently of anything within you. And what's interesting is that imagery of the serpent and this issue of Christ being lifted up. If you th and the, and the, this is the simplistic aspect of this message. The Leviticus story, look upon the serpent and live. And that's the message today. Look upon Christ and live. That's all you gotta do is look upon him on that tree. That's it. So that's a very, very simple message for us to share with others because it's true. And that's what saves, okay? Now back to, I'll make some commentary here, but let me finish this up real quick. So John says, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to his hand. He who believes, here we are again, believers, unbelievers. If you believe in him, the Father loves the sons, given him all things in his hands. If you believe, it's eternal life. But... He who does not obey the Son does not see life and the wrath of God abides on him. So his condition doesn't change. So you have believers, unbelievers. We get back to 16 and we start talking about the world. Now, I'm not going to try, this is not an arrogant move, but it's the truth and it's, it's beneficial. And I have two guys who know New Testament Greek in the room. Specifically, at verse 16, it's what we call a henna clause in the Greek. It's basically a <coughs> purpose and result. And literally in some texts can be read the world of the believing ones or the world of those who are believing. This isn't some indiscriminate, Christ has died for everybody, got a wonderful plan for their life, every man, woman, and child. That's not the world we're talking about here. This is the world of those who actually believe in him. That's the difference, okay? What is it? Uh, we have this discussion. What do you need? I know the answer, but what, do you, what would a person have to believe? What's that? What do you have to believe? You what? believe, you don't believe. I yeah, know. oh yeah. I know the answer, but 
Craig and I were talking about this. Yeah. Believe what? Believe that Christ died for you. That's it. I mean, in, in a, it's an ultra simplistic sense. Would you have to believe you're in sin? You need a savior? Would you have to believe that? Well, remember we talked about the conscience. Man knows he's in sin. That's a, that's a thing that, remember, either accuses or excuses. So man already knows he's in sin. He knows something is not right. The conscience bearing witness, you're either, what I'm doing is just fine, or no, I'm really troubled because I know who I really am. So that's one way to answer that. Isn't it the, the whole gospel? Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's that simple. And John 3 is beautiful that way. And I can go on and on about this, but if you continue reading John's gospel, you're going to see John 6, John 10, John 8, and Jesus plainly will say, no one can come to me unless they are drawn by the Father. That's regeneration. That's what we call it. Whether that's an adequate term or not, I don't know, but that is what is happening. Now, one observation too on 3.16, that... God so loved the world. You know, think about this world. We've been talking about the doctrine of man. That world. That awful, awful place. Where looking at the past, he's killed everybody off one time. They came back and went crazy again at Babel and had to disperse them. And this world in 3.16. What... What grace, what just, that's the world he loved. That's pretty phenomenal. And then the whole imagery here of Christ being lifted up on the cross later, uh, something of note, I think I got the reading today during the service, and it's the book of Jude. And the ESV and the Legacy Standard, which I think rightly um, render it, uh, Christ is the one who brought, as Kyle is walking us through, Exodus out of Egypt. So, um, that's, so anyways, back to 16, just briefly on some notes here. Read it as it should be read. This world is those who are actually believing him, not those who are not believing him, because he already says, I've come into the world, they didn't want me, they've rejected me. And this is what we see today. None of this has changed. But it is that simple. Look upon the serpent and be healed, saved. Such a simple, beautiful picture. But, and then John the Baptist confirming, look, he's from above, he knows all. I'm not from there. But even what I've seen, what I've witnessed is they don't accept this testimony. So if that's the case, what, what you have here, another big word, but uh, the word is antinomy. When you have two truths that appear in the scripture that appear contradictory. Um, man's not violating anything by rejecting Christ. That is his will. He's fully acting upon that will in his rejection. 
to the light that's come into the world. And at the same time, it doesn't matter. When, when God calls someone, there is no debate. You can't look at, at some conversions in the, t- there's just none. When Paul is converted, it's a supernatural act. And it's the same conversion that you experienced, although it wasn't as dynamic as you read about. But it's the same exact thing. God looked at you and said, agent of my wrath, turn. And you did. And you had nothing to do with it. And that's why it's so much more wonderful when you can go, thank you, Lord, for saving me. What a miracle you revealed yourself to me when he has not revealed himself to so many others. So that's part of the antinomy. You have to wrestle with that. Let me just encourage you with, just let God be God. You be you. You have a message. Uh, You have a horse to ride, I think McShane said, and a message to deliver. So then, I don't know if you guys know about McShane and the reading program, and he died relatively young, you know his story. So basically, that's what he said. He said, God gave me a message to deliver, or a horse to ride and a message to deliver, and he basically worked himself to death. He said, the horse is dead, and I have no longer can deliver the message. So, it's a pretty interesting story. But anyways, I got a few minutes left, but so do you see how we covered the doctrine of man and actually how God saves? And Don's already covered this in Romans. He's already talked about the classic passages of how he justifies, he calls, he does all of that stuff. I guess one way to talk about that is that's kind of like the theological superstructure of what, you know, that's like systematic theology in Romans. That's kind of the systematizing of theology. This is more of a story of this dialogue with, with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is so dull. And he, the things he should have recognized and seen, he doesn't see. And so, you know, and basically, um, at the same time, Christ is saying, look, I am the light, but they don't want me. My creatures, who I made, don't want me. So, anyways, um, that's really an introduction to what we're going to be now talking about next week when we get into church history and how this whole topic gets really turned upside down. We're going to look at basically the current Christian perspectives on what we would call man's ability, um, how he can respond to the gospel. We'll look at it basically from the traditions that have written on it extensively. We'll look at the orthodox position on mankind. We'll look at uh, Rome's position on it. We'll look at the classic Protestant expression of it. Um, Then we'll kind of see how that gets teased out look at this whole issue of the doctrine of man comes up between Augustine, Pelagius, what they wrote. You'll get introduced to some people you may not have ever heard of. Um, Many folks know Pelagius, uh, but they're not familiar with his student Castellius, or Castellus, who was a student of Pelagius, who actually, they say was actually the one who really penned most of the stuff that probably got put on Pelagius himself. And how in the history of the church, the stuff flushes itself out. Any thoughts? Yeah, yes. You know, you, you were saying that you, were, you thought that Nicodemus was being sarcastic. And, but the other thing, it is the spirit who illumines, 
who brings the, 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 the moment of, of, of when you actually open your eyes and see, see God for who he is. He was a teacher. He studied the scriptures. He'd done all of that. Mm -hmm. But his eyes had not been opened. His heart had not been breached. Yes. And it is for all of us when you come, whatever age it is, until that time, it's all foolishness. That's right. It all makes no sense. And I know for myself, I went from that's ridiculous to oh my gosh. I, it's real. Supernatural. But yep. that's his gift. That's his grace. Yep. And until that point in time comes, you don't see, you don't understand, even if you've got all the teaching in the world. Sure, sure. There's people who probably exist to that today. Um, and that was probably, looking at my last note here, that is what I think I had penned here is, uh, do you remember when you had your born-again experience and Christ reveals himself to you, what that was like. And often I think that we don't meditate on that enough. I do because I was driving home from work one day and all of a sudden it hit me, God, I know who you are. Huh. I mean, with all of the other that gone on. Yeah. So... So I have a question that just goes along kind of with that, but in verse 21 of John 3, it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. But when it says, but what, whoever does what is true, that seems like a phrase that could be taken wrongly when looking, when you don't understand verse 18 and 16. Yes. Because you could say, well, okay, it's the ones who, are, who aren't doing wicked things, the ones who are doing good things. Mm -hmm. and, or being a Nicodemus, doing teachings of God's word, and thinking, okay, well then obviously I'm going to come to the light, or I have come to the light, and yeah. it's on their basis. And I know that might be getting into next week, but... Um, no, but it, I guess another, another point on 21, though, would be you'd have to interact, too, with the acts being wrought in God. So that's, that's kind of a, that's interesting because I, mean, I guess suppose someone could do that. They could still probably take that perspective on it. I guess I was wondering, could it, is it possible, I guess I don't know, I'm not a Greek student, but um, whoever does what is true, is it similar to saying whoever believes in him? Um, but he who practices the truth comes to the light. Mm -hmm. So there is this, um, well, whatever, there's the practice of the truth and the coming to the light. He's already identified that I am the light, so they're coming to him. Um, I'm not sure if that's what you're getting at. Maybe are they coming to him of their own doing? Right. Right. No, because the acts are actually worked and wrought in God. Right. So it's not this, um, whatever you want to call it. The, the, the verbiage is like libertarian free will. Uh, we don't believe in a libertarian free will. We do believe in free will. You can read the paragraphs in the confession on it. Um, but in terms of regenerative ability, 
Nope. Not until you're born again. And the Spirit acts on you. So I know kind of where I was when I had that. Um, but yeah, and now I don't think about it enough that, uh, you know, some people in the Leviticus story did not live through that experience with the serpents. They actually died. Um, and there were those who looked and lived. So I'm, I'm thankful that I, I looked. God called me to himself, saved me. What a miracle. Um, and I, I'll, I'll never really get really probably to a comfortable place with it. I just You'll never really understand it. He's doing what he's doing. Trevor? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and that's why, and that's, and that kind of, and this is why, I guess, I'm over, I gotta get done here, but this is why you need to have a doctrine of man. This is why you need to understand who man is in light of what the scriptures teach. And then when you get into the topic of how he saves, then you can say, <laughs> okay, this requires supernatural work. So that's the, the dovetail connection to it. That's why we went to, to John 3. So next week, it's church history only. We'll talk about some characters and stuff and controversies and uh, councils and stuff that happened to get some stuff rectified. And you can see what your brothers and sisters from the past had to work through these topics. If you're not comfortable with that, too bad. The history of the church, this is your brethren we're gonna talk about. So that's where we're at. All right, I am done. Brother uh, Tim, would you pray for our time? Father, thank you for this morning.